National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. A month after the Supreme Court issued their decision in Dobbs, effectively sending abortion back to each state to legislate, we take a look at what is happening in the national abortion debate and what states we should be watching. Loretta Brown, the Register's national correspondent, gives us a report. Then senior editor Joan Frawley Desmond discusses another intense topic, pregnant persons. That's right, not pregnant women, but generic persons. How has the transgender movement and the pro-abortion movement conflicted over what it means to be a woman? I'm Jeanette DeMello, Editor-in-Chief and Executive Director of the National Catholic Register. I'm joined here on Register Radio by my co-host, EWTN News' Executive Director Matthew Bunsen, based in Washington. Hi, Matthew. Hello, good to be with you. Always, uh, never a shortage, I guess, of, of news coming out of Washington, and, and so we talk uh, again today with, um, with you and Loretta about what's happening on the national level in terms of abortion policy. Um, I mean, it was just a month ago <laughs> um, that the Supreme Court um, ruled uh, to overturn Roe versus Wade in their Dobbs decision. A tremendous moment, um, but actually it feels like so much has happened already. Well, that's right. Uh, and the, the pro-abortion movement has uh, not been silent or quiet uh, or even peaceful uh, in this subsequent uh, week since uh, the Dobbs decision was handed out. And being based here in Washington, D.C., we have something of a front row for it, as does Loretta. Exactly, exactly. So we, we've talked already on this um, on the show in, in past um, in past shows on Register Radio about the the outrage, you know, about the disruption, about the uh, vandalism of pregnancy centers and churches and, and the intimidation of justices. That's one factor. Um, but there is um, a push to, to try to get a national abortion policy um, back on the books. And uh, although the president can't do that himself, he's certainly doing his part. On uh, July 8th, he signed an executive order that aims to promote access to what he calls critical reproductive health care services, including abortion. Loretta, bringing you into this conversation, uh, what did the executive order do? What did Biden's executive order do? Well, really not a lot is what, I, <laughs> is what I'm finding is, um, you know, it was called performative by a lot of the people that I, I spoke with, some of these legal experts, because really he's in a position where he, he wants to, you know, seem to be taking action on this because abortion advocates, um, you know, want to have some sort of security, some sort of knowledge that abortion will be widely accessible. So he's signaling, I mean, very clearly that he wants to expand abortion access, but by bringing in things like he talks about protecting access access to contraception, which is something that the court in their decision very clearly said, you know, this has nothing to do with contraception. Um, and then another thing, he brings up this um, Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, and there was this guidance from HHS following the order about, um, you know, in life and death situations, if an abortion is, you know, something that's, that's needed there, that the physicians have the freedom to do that. And, you know, talking to folks about that element of the order, it's really not, um, you know, adding something new um, because 
that that's always been there. That <laughs> that idea that uh, physicians can use their judgment in life and death situations about treatments, and you know, pro-life physicians also they they wouldn't call that sort of intervention an abortion where you know maybe they're they're looking at life of the mother situations um, and and having respect for both the mother and the unborn child in those situations. But it's it's things like that where it was deemed you know un unnecessary. It's already kind of there in in what doctors consider in their decisions and already uh, like under the act it's it's permitted so he's he's trying to say like he's expanding access and he's clarifying things and um you know they're definitely looking at avenues to actually expand access they talk a lot about medication abortion um and they had paved the way for that to the FDA to just widely allow that, um, you know, these at-home abortions. So they're continuing in that part of things. And it kind of remains to be seen to what extent the states will be able to regulate that. Because so far, you know, many of these states, I think it's about half um, have or 19 states have in-person requirements on these on these pills. So the the women taking them have to consult with a medical professional. Um, and and given some of the side effects and concerns surrounding these pills, it seems very very warranted. Um, so that that was kind of what what the order was attempting to do is is yeah. these avenues of expansion. Yes, there's there's a lot to unpack in what you've talked about because I think um, so many of these elements are, are still in play and very much uh, discussions that need to uh, or elements of the policy that need to be unpacked. But uh, one thing that strikes me just right off is it was him saying to his base, "Hey, I'm with you," <laughs> right? And that is the right. the the most e extreme. Um, pro-abortion groups. He's saying, hey, you know, I'm with you. I'm going to find a way with you um, to accomplish um, what we want. And, and I think that's the biggest signal he was sending. Um, I, I think I, I want to re reference an article that you did because you mentioned um, the life-threatening pregnancies. And you did a great article uh, that spoke to physicians and ethicists about that. And I'm, I'm going to mention the name so people can look it up at ncregister.com. The, the title is Pro-Life Perspectives on Life-Threatening Pregnancies. Experts contest claim that abortion is necessary, but they also talk about cases of ectopic pregnancy and miscarriage and, and how care is given in those circumstances. One of the things, Loretta, that really struck me about uh, Biden's um, executive order, but also other things that are happening uh, on the national level, relates to uh, what we call often as crisis pregnancy centers, and these centers who seek to help women who aren't um, looking for an abortion but are looking for help um, in in their pregnancy, and and basically they're targeting these groups, um, claiming that they are putting out misinformation, and so they've really the media, the executive order, and even some legislative efforts it seems are are targeting these crisis pregnancy centers. What have you learned about this? Yeah, it's very sad to see. There's been this push. Um, Senator Elizabeth Warren recently um, introduced a bill um, claiming that crisis pregnancy centers are, quote, anti-abortion organizations that present themselves as comprehensive reproductive health care providers. And so basically she has all these accusations of them being misleading and, and kind of just tricking women who want abortions into thinking, um, you know, that they, they offer that, but then kind of manipulating them. And it's strange because her the language of her bill 
you know, has steep fines for, for deceptive language, but she won't specify what that language is. A reporter followed up with her this past week about it, and she she didn't have examples aside from she said, oh, you know, if, if the colors of, of some of their logos are similar to Planned Parenthood, <laughs> she said something like that. Wow. Um, and it's, yeah. yeah, oh yeah, it was very strange. Um, and it's sad because really, I mean, I have reported on these crisis pregnancy centers. I've visited them. I think we've, we've all seen the effect they have. They have so many resources for women. And, you know, these women walk in and they are given information and they're given, um, you know, different resources and different um, options. And, you know, if, if abortion is still something that they are considering, that's, you know, that's something that they grapple with. But, you know, at least in what I've seen, I haven't seen deception. You know, I, I've seen them say, you know, we're not going to refer for abortion. We're not going to, we don't provide abortions here. They'll, some of them even disclose that right on their websites, right, you know, on their billboards. But they don't, the one, I have not seen, you know, these supposed misleading uh, language that, that Senator Warren is talking about. And, um, it's just it is saddening because there's been there have been instances of vandalism against these centers, you know, in, in after the Dobbs decision. And so they're just coming up on on all these things that they're having to combat. And I know one of the directors of uh, Crisis Pregnancy Center Network uh, testified about, you know, having to pay so much more for security in recent months. So they're just, yeah, they're up against a lot, and they're doing some great work. Yes, and in some states like New York, um, they're making um, uh, some laws that, that make uh, the medical standards tougher for these kind of centers and whatnot. So they're going to have to go through scrutiny in that kind. So anyway, it's, a, it's something to watch. You have a, a blog that you wrote about the, uh, the particular um, legislation by uh, Senator, Senator Elizabeth Warren, and that blog's called Pro-Life Pregnancy Centers Help Women, Why Are They Being Targeted? And then uh, the article about the executive order uh, is Biden's performative, in quotes, <laughs> executive order on abortion access. Those are both worth our listeners going to ncregister.com and looking up. And I think Matthew wants to bring us into what's happening on state level. That's right. Uh, Lord, I know we've talked a couple of times with you uh, about the importance of Kansas as uh, citizens now grapple with changing abortion laws in various states. The reason is that Kansas is the first real major opportunity for change across the state since the Dobb decision. What's happening in Kansas that we should all be aware of? So they're, they're facing an important vote on August 2nd on the value them both amendment, and that amendment would clarify that there is not a right to abortion in the state's constitution, because back in 2019, in a, a decision on an abortion law, the, the state Supreme Court found a right to abortion in the constitution, and since then, there have just been a lot of pro-life efforts in the state to say, no, you know, there's not, there's not a right to abortion. We, the, the state legislators, our representatives, representatives can, you know, pass reasonable laws on abortion. Um, and so it's a really interesting moment, though, because it is the first kind of ballot test of uh, where people are on abortion following the Dobbs decision. And, you know, Kansas is uh, more of a red state, um, but there's it, it seems like some of the polling, it, it's uh, opinion on abortion is 
um, close to 50-50 almost, and there was a 538 poll about it. But it's it's interesting because, it, yeah, it'll kind of be a bellwether ahead of, of the midterms to see where people stand on this. And and it is something where there there are common sense regulations, um, you know, on abortion in Kansas that were removed after this. They found you know this right to abortion in the Constitution supposedly. So um, they had just health and safety uh, regulations for clinics. That that law um, this past December was was removed, was found to be, you know, unconstitutional. So what I've found talking to, to pro-lifers in Kansas about this is just that, you know, they talk about we've, we've already passed all these great pro-life protections and we're watching them, um, you know, come under threat. There's this language um, when they found this right to abortion in the Constitution of that, you know, regulation of abortion would be, quote, presumed unconstitutional and there would just be this higher burden. So they're saying, we just kind of want to go back to, you know, being able to to regulate this and, and protect the laws we have. Um, so they're doing a lot of work out there and um, the Archdiocese is involved as well. Archbishop Nauman's been speaking out about, he's talked about how this is a human rights issue um, to just to be able to have, you know, regulations on dismemberment abortions. Um, you know, late term abortion um, and even just pointing to the um, kind of polling um, nationally and in Kansas about, you know, against people are, are against these more extreme, you know, abortion procedures. Right. You know, Loretta, I would, I would venture to think <laughs> that um, it is so neck to neck because of the amount of money probably being poured into this debate there as a bellwether, you know, just um, a, a lot rides on what happens in Kansas in terms of giving people hope or um, for what could happen in the midterm. So it is a, it's a very interesting moment. Um, of course, um, the, the Kansas bishops, you mentioned um, Archbishop Nauman in Kansas City, but the other Kansas bishops have joined him in urging a yes vote um, uh, for the amendment, and of course, we will be watching on on August second to to see what happens. And as the name of the amendment um, designates, uh, it says value them both. And and the Kansas bishops are really saying this is going to help unborn babies, but it also will help women, um, especially those in unplanned pregnancies. So something to continue to watch and. And even to pray for, um, Loretta. As always, you you just <laughs> you know jam pack this um, this segment with important information, and and I'm always appreciative of of your reporting um, from our national desk. Well, thank you. When we come back, we'll talk to Register Senior Editor Joan Desmond about conflicting views on what it means to be a woman, even among abortion advocates. This is Register Radio on EWTN. There's more when we return. Archbishop Cordelione talks about the National Catholic Register. The Register's content is so 
critically important in the society we're living in now. There's an absence of the practice of religion in public life. So all the more important is it for people to be reading the register so that they can acquire more understanding of our Catholic faith. I've appreciated the catechetical benefits of the content of the register. It presents very clear Catholic teaching in a way that is easily digestible. To get six free issues, order online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. Call or click today. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director and Editor-in-Chief of the National Catholic Register, joined by Matthew Bunsen, my co-host here on Register Radio. You all know, all of our listeners know, that national debate on abortion policy has been very heated for many months leading up to the Dobbs decision uh, last month in June. And uh, in the course of this year, you might have heard the term pregnant persons or persons with the capacity to get pregnant used in place of the word woman. Uh, of course, in such speech, we, we really hear the verbal engineering of the transgender movement. And Joan Desmond has been writing about this uh, for the Register. She's been working on a news analysis that touches upon the collision between the pro-abortion movement and the pro-transgender movement. And the collision is over what it means to be a woman. Welcome back to Register Radio, Joan. Hey, Jeanette. So good to be with you. So this was a tough story, tough analysis, because there's a lot uh, going on here. Tough meaning that there's a lot to wade through. Really, though, we started as a team talking about a story, you know, you writing a story, uh, a couple weeks ago when this language, this strange language about (laughs) pregnant persons or or persons who have the capacity to get pregnant, came into sort of national view at a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on abortion access and the law. Tell our listeners what happened if they haven't already seen it somewhere else. <laughs> what happened in that exchange? Well, it's very, it's very likely that they have because this exchange went viral. It's been reported everywhere. Everyone has a point of view. But in sum, um, there is an ongoing Senate Judiciary Committee hearing dealing with women, abortion rights, and all the understandable concern that's arisen with different laws having different views and so what, what will this do to women who are particularly affected by any changes in the abortion law. In the middle of what might have been a very predictable conversation, one of the hearing witnesses, a Berkeley law professor, Kiara Bridges, was asked to talk about, about the unborn child and whether she thought they had any value. She said that she would rather talk about, in so many words, I don't have the precise language, talk about being a woman and about people, well, specifically, she wanted to talk about people who have the capacity to get pregnant. So when it was um, Missouri uh, Republican Senator Josh Hawley's turn to, in, to talk to her, he said, oh, people who have the capacity to, to get pregnant, would that be women? And she agreed that it was women, but uh, it would include women, but it would also include 
you know, non-binary people, transgender men. And so then he said, well, does the abortion rights movement really have that much to do with women per se? And then she said, well, it does have something to do with women, but we can't exclude these other groups. They were, of course, in many ways talking past each other, and that's what everyone agreed for the most part, and everyone had their point of view about the etiquette of such conversations and how to make them more productive. But, Jeanette, basically, how is there any solution to what is really an impasse with no agreement even on language? If a woman isn't going to be just a woman, it's going to be referred to as a person with cervix, as it is in some public health uh, websites, or if breastfeeding is going to be termed chest feeding, it's not easy to have a conversation. Right, right. And it, it really misses something that historically and biologically has been quite obvious. And and as you mentioned, this this exchange went viral. It was a bit of a show. Uh, you know, it was it was not a true misunderstanding. It was an opportunity to make a point by both sides, really. Uh, on one side, of course, she claimed that Senator Hawley was being uh, a transphobic, right? And then his whole point was to show the social and verbal engineering taking place. But as you point out, there is a much deeper problem. Women who are typically understood to be more vulnerable in some ways because of our biology are left indeed more vulnerable. So how did the people you talked to for your analysis describe this problem? Yeah, I think the whole thing is so confusing. You have to spend an awful lot of time on it. And while I'm trying to help our readers with that process, it really isn't easy because the whole thing is very convoluted. In sum, you have what is now a collision between, you know, what was once in graduate school seminars, so-called gender theory, the view that biological must be brought into line with the person's separate inner feeling of being a man or a woman, rather than the body's biological sex defining this identity. So some experts, uh, some theologians in Catholic institutions, made the point that, you know, in the early days, of the feminist movement, we can remember that feminists thought that that gender, which was a kind of description of sort of feminine attributes, was a construct. Now it's been flipped, and the idea is that your inner gender feelings, whatever they may be, whether aligned with your body or not, are actually the innate, the kind of the more innate aspects of who you are, and it's your body which is actually malleable and can be altered in some way or or adapted in some way to fit your inner feelings. So this is the basis of gender identity on the one hand. Then you have, on the other, abortion rights activism, which has targeted women in particular. So we have this weird collision where, in some cases, the New York Times had an article explaining that uh, the debate in progressive circles had become so awkward and and weird that People weren't even using the word women while promoting concerns about abortion rights being threatened. So they called it the word, you know, the disappearing word of the abortion rights movement. Hmm. And so many women look at this, they look at a word like person with a cervix, and what they feel is like is they've been sliced and diced, right? They feel like rather than their whole self, body and soul, their, their full humanity which they don't spend a lot of time maybe thinking about separately, but then they see a word like person with a cervix, and it brings it home to them, and they're kind of taken aback. I looked at 
both the politics of it, some of the philosophical discussions, the way that theologians are trying to help the Church understand this, and then also I think a really interesting part is kind of how the message gets gets filtered down to young girls and teenagers. I spoke with one woman, Christine Whalen, who's the founder and president of the Culture Project, which is a great apostolate out of Philadelphia, and she does chastity education in schools, and she said girls are just completely confused, and in some ways they just feel they've gotten the bad end of things. They feel they've got the problem of getting their periods, they've got worries about getting pregnant in an environment in which permissive sex is, is pervasive, but on the other hand, they don't see the upside, the value of motherhood, the value of, of, of sort of growing into adulthood and being a culture former, of being the person in the home and in society that really tries to defend the human person, to be nurturing to the human person in all the different ways that they need support. So you have this kind of very, very negative message, either from the abortion rights movement, what you have to watch out for, then this kind of weird gender-neutral or disembodied message from a gender identity movement. And where does that really lead people? It leaves a lot of women and men, by extension, in a kind of strange place. And so how do women get back to some sense of who they are? And I think some of these experts, like, like Deborah Savage, a theologian at uh, Franciscan University, or Abigail uh, Fabale, who's at Notre Dame, they think there's a new opportunity now with the conclusion of these two things and women being sort of pummeled by all these messaging, this messaging, which is so contradictory, that maybe it's a chance for them to start over, to start fresh, and actually grapple again with who they really are. Well, Joan connected uh, in some ways with that is the, the part of the exchange at the, the Senate Judiciary Committee. It really cast a spotlight on something else, and that is uh, the one that uh, Senator Hawley publicized in his media appearances, that disagreement now equals violence. What's happening here? Yeah, I think that's another issue, and, and this also affects women's ability to speak out if they're not comfortable with the use of such languages, right? Like, everyone else gets to have a chance to register their feelings and concerns, but do women get to? And the point at that Senate hearing was that if you challenge the use of this language to say, well, so are you saying that women are not threatened or uh, by the change in abortion, or, you, you know, what are you kind of saying? And if it involves anything to do with transgender rights or people that have some kind of gender nonconforming experience, then you're accused of, of threatening them and even, you know, creating a very hostile environment. And so that creates an additional problem and we were talking about that also in the classroom with younger girls where so much of this discussion has been politicized. There's no way just to have a conversation about growing up as a woman. And so young girls don't want to really necessarily ask a lot of questions because they're worried, you know, by, by making these distinctions, like they're a girl, not a boy, that maybe someone will see that as bigoted. Right. Uh, so you have so problems throughout society with not a lot of free and open discussion. Right. There's a lot of self-censorship. Joan, your article is really um, a tremendous take on, on this debate and, and this analysis, so I appreciate you writing about women and pregnant persons. Uh, our listeners can go to ncregister.com for this story and other analysis at ncregister.com. Thanks for joining us 
on Register Radio here on EWTN. For Matthew Bunsen and our producer, Jeff Burson, I'm Jeanette DeMello. And until next week, may God bless you.